You don't want to let a former president get away with crimes, right? Because nobody in America is above the law, right? except corporations and rich people and police and celebrities sometimes. But aside from them... Yes, aside from them, we're not talking about them today, are we? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Well, that's right. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Hey, here I am from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, and in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around. Swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And with all of the other terrible news for Republicans this week... Meaning good news for Americans, Desi Doyen. <laughs> this is true. There is uh, this uh, horribly disappointing news uh, for the GOP on Wednesday. U.S. consumer prices did not rise in July due to a sharp drop in the cost of gasoline, delivering the first notable sign of relief for Americans who have watched inflation climb over the past two years. That, according to the U.S. Labor Department. Well, that is good news. I know. Well, for most Americans, just not for Republican (laughs) ones. The consumer price index was unchanged last month, suggesting inflation may be slowing or even returning to normal levels. That good news for consumers is, of course, sure to disappoint Republicans previously reveling in recent months over, uh, you know, some points of bad economic news for their constituents. They're happy about that because bad news for their voters is good news for them. Indeed, they were practically gleeful at how much it was going to cost all these consumers and how mad they were going to be. Well, nevertheless, uh, they may still take uh, comfort in that underlying inflation pressures, according to the Labor Department, remain elevated as the Federal Reserve mulls whether to embrace another huge interest rate hike in September. Economists polled by Reuters had forecasted a 0.2% rise in the monthly Consumer Price Index in July on the heels of a roughly 20% drop in the cost of gasoline. I should note that that huge drop in the cost of gas is 100% thanks to President Joe Biden's smart fiscal policies. 
period. In fact, of course, it isn't. But <laughs> as long as Republicans are, you know, had blamed Biden for 100 percent of the previous rise in gas prices, for which his policies had little or nothing to do, I'm sure that they will also give him full 100 percent credit for the huge drop in gas prices at the pump. Right. Underlying inflation pressures, which exclude volatile food and energy components, the so-called core CPI, also showed some encouraging signs. Core CPI rose just 0.3% in July after climbing 0.7% in June. But don't worry, Republicans, I'm sure the encouraging uh, economic news for Americans won't last or continue over the next 90 days until the November midterms, right? So everything will be fine. Speaking of those midterms, I will have some uh, results from Tuesday's primary elections in Connecticut, Minnesota, Vermont, and Wisconsin momentarily, which also might be seen as bad news for Republicans, even if some of them believe it's good news because a bunch of Trumpers won. Uh, and then definitely more bad news for Republicans, at least Trump Republicans, the disgraced former president who used to decry people who declared the Fifth Amendment uh, as criminals and mobsters. Well, he spent his Wednesday morning in New York apparently declaring that the Fifth Amendment was needed to protect him over and over and over again for about four hours during his deposition in the bank tax and insurance fraud probe being carried out against him and his kids and his Trump organization by the New York State Attorney General. We've got just the person to get some insight on that case joining us shortly. And even while we still don't know all that much about the warranted search executed by the FBI at Trump's Mar-a-Lago compound in South Florida on Monday, I have some questions about all of it that I'm hoping a uh, former federal prosecutor may be able to shed some light on. Former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia and head of the DOJ's public corruption and government fraud section, Randall Eliason, will be with us shortly to do just that, I hope. Uh, but first, as noted, it was primary election day on Tuesday in four states. But we've got, before we get there, some uh, one more race from last week's primaries in Washington state that I want to mop up first. Incumbent Republican U.S. Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler of Washington's 3rd Congressional District conceded late on Tuesday in her August 2 primary. to uh, She conceded to Trump-endorsed Republican Joe Kent. Now, uh, she was targeted for having voted in favor of Trump's impeachment. Kent will now advance to the general election on November 8 for the congressional seat against Democrat Marie Glusenkamp Perez. Herrera Butler was the one who revealed, you may recall, that minority leader Kevin McCarthy told her that he spoke with Trump while rioters were storming the Capitol on January 6, and that, according to McCarthy, the president said to him, quote, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. So, of course, she had to pay a price for that as well. Uh, for his part, Joe Kent has been critical of Washington state's election system, naturally. Uh, though, as is usually the case, he will likely stop complaining about it for at least a few days now that it appears that he has won the 
Republican race to advance to November. He's also been endorsed by white nationalists. I, I, I oh, guess goody. that was uh, why Donald. One of the reasons why Donald Trump liked him wow. so much. Uh, he has described COVID nineteen as a China designed vehicle to suppress freedoms. Has suggested the FBI was actually behind the January sixth attack on the Capitol and following the warranted search at Mar-a-Lago this week. He tweeted about bringing, quote, the national security state to heal, saying it has to be our top priority in 2023, starting with the FBI and DOJ. Kent's Democratic opponent, Camp Perez, has said that the third congressional district race in the southwest part of the state across the border from Portland, Oregon, Uh, is, quote, going to be a national bellwether for the direction of the country and for the future of our democracy. We will see. As we noted yesterday, Herrera Butler's incumbent Republican colleague in Washington's 4th Congressional District, Dan Newhouse, who also voted for Trump's impeachment, while he was able to push back the former president's endorsed challenger, He'll face Democrat Doug White this fall. For the record, according to the Washington uh, Secretary of State's office, the last incumbent member of Congress to lose in a primary in Washington state was Rep. John Miller, who lost to Ralph Hoare. Remember that? No. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't think you would. It was back in 1930. That was the last time an incumbent was unseated in Washington (laughs) state. As to this Tuesday's uh, primary elections in those four states, in our highly curated rundown of noteworthy reported results as of today. Remember, none of these results have been verified by any human beings in uh, Connecticut, Minnesota, Vermont, Wisconsin. All are tallied at this point only by computers, either correctly or incorrectly. Who knows? And all are incomplete as late returns continue to arrive and to be tallied uh, today. But based on the reported numbers as of today, let's start with one of the easier states. That would be Vermont. Vermont's lone congressman. They've got just one in uh, so-called at-large district, Peter Welch. He's a, a Democrat. And as expected, he has very easily won the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate to fill the seat being vacated by 82-year-old retiring Democrat Patrick Leahy, the longest-serving member of the Senate. Welch, he might have been there back in 1930 (laughs) when uh, Washington... Anyway, uh, Washington's... I'm sorry, Welch's uh, challenger this November will be Republican Gerald Malloy, though Welch is expected to win easily in November in a state with a long history of electing Democrats to federal positions. Nonetheless, Vermont has also a long tradition, well, not quite as long, but uh, for a while has uh, voted for Republican governors. They are also elected statewide in Vermont, and Republican Governor Phil Scott easily won his primary on Tuesday as he runs for a fourth term. Now, that sounds like a really long time, but in Vermont, the governor uh, serves two-year terms only, so it's not quite as long. He is expected to win his re-election easily in the fall in a state where ticket splitting 
has actually become the norm in recent years for uh, statewide state level races. Uh, they go for the Republican, for the uh, Senate and the House. They go for the Democrat. Scott will run uh, for governor against Democratic candidate Brenda Siegel, who ran unopposed for the Dem nomination, and against Susan Hatch Davis, who ran unopposed for the state's progressive party nomination. Uh, as uh, Congressman Welch likely ascends to the U.S. Senate to fill Leahy's seat, the one at-large congressional seat in Vermont, which he has filled for a while, will now be open this November. This November, Bernie Sanders endorsed Becca Ballant, won a four-way four-way race to win the Democratic nomination for that seat. She's the favorite to win it this fall. She'll run against Republican nominee Liam Madden and Progressive Party nominee Barbara Nolfit, who ran unopposed. If successful, as most expect, the Progressive Democratic nominee Ballant will become the first female member of Congress from Vermont. Well, it's about time. In the race in Connecticut uh, to take on two-term Democratic U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who ran unopposed on Tuesday, moderate Republican Themis Claritas, an abortion rights supporter, and the first woman to be the state's House Republican leader. Well, she was the favorite to win her party's nominee uh, nomination. However, she didn't. Trump-backed Leora Levy easily defeated her by some 10 points on Tuesday and what was largely a very good night for Trump-supported candidates, if not necessarily for the Republican Party themselves, but, well, we'll find out if that's true in November. Blumenthal remains the favorite for re-election to the Senate, but then again, Leora Levy was supposed to lose to Themis Claritas as well, so we'll see. In the Secretary of State's race in Connecticut, all of which are critical across the country this year in light of the uh, Trump 2020 election denier movement. On the Republican side, Dominic Rapini, the former chair of a group which made bogus evidence-free complaints about the 2020 election results, won his primary in Connecticut to face Stephanie Thomas, who easily won hers on the Democratic side for, again, the critical role as the state's next election chief. Thomas was endorsed by the outgoing incumbent Democratic Secretary of State, Denise Merrill, in a state where Democrats have not lost a statewide election since 2006. Meanwhile, in Minnesota, in a special U.S. House election on Tuesday in the first congressional district to fill the seat of the late Republican Jim Hagedorn, who died in February after a battle with cancer, Republican Brad Finstad has been declared the winner. While his win was expected in a so-called red district, Democrats had uh, thought they had maybe had a strong candidate in Jeff Ettinger, a pro-business moderate and a retired CEO of the locally based Hormel Foods. As of today, Ettinger fell about four points short of defeating Finstad, however. One primary House election of note I want to mention on Tuesday was surprisingly close. That was for incumbent progressive Democrat 
Uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, she uh, defeated the more moderate Democrat, former Minneapolis City Council member Don Samuels in the 5th District, but it was the closest contest of her career. She edged out Samuels by just over two points, with 95% of results tallied as of airtime today. Samuels conceded on Tuesday uh, evening and pledged his support for Omar in the general election, noting, quote, and and some of you, your, your Republican candidates out there may want to write this down, quote, the will of the people is the will of the people. Part of the effort to reach out to uh, people, to talk to them on the phone, to go to their doors, to go to events is out of deference for their decision making freedom. To then violate that trust in people's wisdom and not celebrate their decision would be inconsistent with the democratic process. Again, some of you Republicans out there may want to write that down. May come in, may come in helpful, just in case you need a reminder about how the democratic process is supposed to work. The Cook Political Report uh, rating for this uh, district in November is solid Democrat. So that means progressive Ilhan Omar of the squad will almost certainly win another term in Congress in her race against Republican nominee Cicely Davis while driving Republicans and maybe some conservative Democrats nuts, which is (laughs) fine by me. Also in Minnesota on Tuesday... State uh, Republicans chose Kim Crockett. I kind of want to say emphasis on crock. But anyway, Kim (laughs) Crockett as their nominee for secretary of state. She's part of the uh, group of Trump uh, MAGA 2020 election deniers hoping to try and win secretary of state positions around the country. She called the 2020 election a train wreck for some reason, I guess because her candidate lost and she cast out on the vote counting during the pandemic in Minnesota. During her campaign, Crockett aired a conspiracist video that used anti-Semitic tropes, leading to an apology, believe it or not, by the Minnesota Republican Party chair. Wow. It has to be bad if it actually garners an apology. Well, it might have been no surprise because she was also tossed out of a right-wing think tank, apparently, back in 2019 after making racist remarks about refugees. Nonetheless, on Tuesday, uh, Republican voters in the great state of Minnesota elected Kim Crockett as their Secretary of State nominee anyway. So anti-Semitism, xenophobia, apparently that wins for the uh, for the GOP in Minnesota's statewide Secretary of State primary. Crockett will go on to face incumbent Democratic Secretary of State Steve Simon this fall in what is now another critical election for 2024 in what has become a swing state, Minnesota, of sorts, Anyway, uh, another uh, critical election for 2024 taking place this November in 2022. Right, because the people that win positions of power in the 2022 election will be in positions of power to affect or subvert the 2024 (laughs) election. Yeah, Uh, like the Secretary of State in the very uh, now closely divided uh, state of Minnesota. Which has been uh, quite influential in several recent presidential elections. That said, it was Wisconsin where the Trump effect may have reverberated the loudest on Tuesday, where the most 
powerful Republican in the state, 18-year incumbent, and the longtime far-right Speaker of the State Assembly, Robin Voss. I think he's been Speaker of the uh, Assembly for more than 10 years now. He came within a hair of losing his job to a Trump-endorsed challenger on Tuesday. Uh, that, even though, as noted, Voss has been one of the most right-wing Republicans in the state for many years. He was responsible for, uh, well, for a lot that went on during Governor Scott Walker's tenure. He was also responsible for hiring the buffoonish former state Supreme Court justice to carry out an endless probe into the 2020 election, which is still ongoing, still being uh, paid for with uh, taxpayer dollars, I believe. Voss has himself falsely claimed that the 2020 elections were somehow fraudulent, but that was not enough. All of that was not enough for Donald Trump. What did Voss do? What was his great crime? Well, he told Trump that there's no actual legal or constitutional way for the 2020 election to be decertified at this point. And for that, he drew Trump's ire and, yes, a MAGA challenger who came within about two and a half points of dethroning Voss. Uh, but in the end, he will remain on the job after defeating his Trump-endorsed opponent, Adam Steen. But while the state's Democratic governor, Tony Evers, ran unopposed for a second term in Wisconsin, he'll now face Trump-based construction millionaire Tim Michaels in November, uh, who defeated Mike Pence-backed Rebecca Cleefish. She served as lieutenant governor under the Badger State's corrupt far-right governor, Scott Walker, but that was not enough to win it on Tuesday. Evers, meanwhile, has vetoed more than a dozen bills by the state's gerrymandered Republican Assembly run by Voss, which would have restricted voting in all sorts of ways in the state, and Michaels has pushed the false claim that 2020 can somehow still be decertified. And he's also promised to abolish the state's bipartisan election commission. So now uh, this race for governor in Wisconsin also becomes a critically important one in a state that Biden narrowly won in 2020 and Trump narrowly won in 2016. Also critically important. The race for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, where Democrats hope to unseat Republican Senator Ron Johnson in what they see as a very real pickup opportunity this fall to expand their majority in the upper chamber. Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes easily won the nomination for Democrats on Tuesday after four of his Democratic opponents recently dropped out of the race in order to get behind Barnes and his effort to unseat one of the nation's dumbest and most dishonest Republican senators. And that is saying quite a lot. That said, Ron Johnson also looked quite beatable the last time he was up for election, and yet he managed to pull it off at the last minute. So we will see. If Barnes wins, he will be the state's first black U.S. senator. Two election deniers battled it out to become the GOP nominee for attorney general in Wisconsin. Election denier Eric Toney appears to have outpaced Adam Jarcho. Tony will now face incumbent Democrat Josh Call, who ran unopposed for the AG nod. And in the Democratic Secretary of State's race, Doug LaFollette, who was first elected to the job in 1974, 
Yes, you heard me right. Uh, He (laughs) defeated his primary challenger, but he now faces Amy Loudenbeck this November uh, for the Republicans. Now, the Wisconsin Secretary of State doesn't actually run elections in the state. That is handled by the bipartisan Wisconsin Election Commission. But Loudenbeck would very much like to change that. So if both she wins and Tim Michael wins as governor, well, then the secretary of state race could be far more critical for 2024 than uh, many currently realize. Right now, Governor Evers, the Democrat, would likely veto any attempt to do away with the state election commission. Michaels would likely do the opposite, uh, particularly if Loudenbeck somehow defeats the millionth term Doug LaFollette. So we will uh, we will keep you up to date on any further developments. Hawaii votes this Saturday. Next Tuesday, it's Alaska, where Sarah Palin is running in a special U.S. House election for the state's only U.S. House seat. Uh, and also Wyoming, where Liz Cheney is likely to find herself out of a job for being far too honest for today's Republican Party. Never fear, however, Donald Trump certainly isn't. And on Wednesday, in a state deposition, he reportedly pleaded the Fifth Amendment four hours in a row. That story and some very helpful insight on the FBI search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago home on Monday is next with former prosecutor Randall Elias. And I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. If we don't switch our pleas to guilty and then change, it ain't enough to know better than just say. Just say. Just say. I plead the fifth. <laughs> yes, he does. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, when he was first running for president back in 2016 while applauding both the FBI probe of presidential candidate Hillary Clinton and uh, related uh, congressional investigations of Democrats at the time, Donald Trump had a few thoughts on pleading the Constitution's Fifth Amendment to protect oneself from self-incrimination. Have you seen what's going on in front of Congress? Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Horrible. Horrible. When you have your staff taking the Fifth Amendment, taking the Fifth so they're not prosecuted. I think it's disgraceful. Like you see on the mob, right? You see the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Great question. Great question, Donald. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Donald Trump invoked his Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination as he testified under oath on Wednesday in the New York Attorney General's long-running fraud investigation into his business dealings, according to AP this afternoon. Trump arrived at Attorney General Letitia James's Manhattan offices in a motorcade shortly after 9 a.m. before announcing more than an hour later that he, quote, declined to answer the questions under the rights and privileges afforded to every citizen under the United States Constitution. 
He even spoke to his previous comments on the Fifth Amendment in his statement. He said, I once asked, if you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Well, now I know the answer to that question, he said. When your family, your company, and all the people in your orbit have become targets of an unfounded, politically motivated witch hunt supported by lawyers, prosecutors, and the fake news media, you have no choice. Oh, well, there you go. But I guess the mob uh, has family and companies too, don't they, Donald? Of course, it was hardly the first time that he has pleaded the fifth, in truth. He invoked it in 1990 to refuse to answer some 97 questions during a divorce deposition. I guess that was an unfounded, politically motivated witch hunt, too. New York's investigation, led by James into what is alleged to be bank tax and insurance fraud, involves allegations that Trump's company, the Trump Organization, misled lenders and tax authorities about the value of prized assets like golf courses and skyscrapers. In May, James's office said that it was nearing the end of an investigation against Trump, his company, or both. Trump's deposition and those of his children, Don Jr. and Ivanka, who are said to have been deposed in recent days, are believed to be the few remaining pieces before James decides whether or not to bring a lawsuit seeking financial penalties. It's unclear whether... His kids also invoked the Fifth Amendment during their depositions, though when brother Eric Trump sat for a deposition in the same investigation back in 2020, he invoked the Fifth more than 500 times, according to court papers. Wednesday's events unfolded as a flurry of legal activity surrounds the disgraced former president. As you know, on Monday, FBI agents searched his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, an unprecedented legal search of a former president's home in what is reportedly, though in no way confirmed to be, part of an unrelated federal probe into whether he took highly classified records when he left the White House as the National Archives responsible for collecting, storing, and cataloging presidential records, has alleged. Naturally, that news on Monday has led a firestorm under outraged Republicans who are calling for all-out war, some of them quite literally, on the Department of Justice and the FBI in the extreme and otherwise demanding that U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, appointed by President Biden, explain himself while otherwise ignoring the Donald Trump appointee, FBI Director Christopher Wray would most likely have signaled off on this action on Monday as well, along with a federal judge to whom probable cause of a crime would have to be demonstrated before they all signed off on this historically unprecedented action of executing a search warrant on the home of a former president. Still, As detailed on yesterday's broadcast, there is much more that we do not know about what happened on Monday and why than what we do know about it. Much of what we know has come from Trump's own ridiculous statement about it, predictably uh, calling the action a witch hunt, of course, as he always does, and declaring that the U.S. is because they searched his home with a lawful search warrant, now a third world banana republic. That claim has now been repeated by just about every right-wing media outlet and Republican official and pundit all across the country ever since, even though none of them know why the lawful search actually took place. 
Even the reports that it has something to do with the 15 boxes or more of presidential records, many of them highly classified, that the National Archives says Trump took with him to Florida when he left the White House, well, those reports as well are based on unnamed sources likely close to Trump. So they, too, are likely to paint all of this in the best possible light for him. Of course, as Obama's former Solicitor General Neil Kutyal made clear yesterday, if Trump wanted to avoid any such speculation, he could simply release the warrant that he should now have in his possession, spelling out why his home was searched, the legal basis for that search, and what possible laws he may have broken. But Trump has not released that warrant for some reason. The lack of confirmed details on all of this, of course, has not prevented media from speculating about any of it, which we have tried not to do on this show. Joining us for Insight today, a man that we often turn to in these matters to give us actual insight as opposed to speculation, though maybe we'll coax some of that out of him as well, is uh, Randall D. Eliason, former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as chief of the public corruption and government fraud section. He's now a law professor at D.C.'s George Washington University Law School and a writer and commentator on corporate and white-collar criminal law and other matters in scholarly journals, not to mention the Washington Post and at his own Sidebars blog. Oh, Mr. Eliason, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Great to be here. I had hoped to uh, talk to you today about the search at Mar-a-Lago, uh, and we will, but we got sort of lucky, I guess, uh, with a twofer given uh, Trump's deposition in New York uh, on Wednesday. So let's quickly start there as you're an expert in fraud. Even uh, that doesn't sound completely right to call you that. Uh, what, if anything, <laughs> uh, should we take away from, from Trump's claim that he invoked the fifth during his uh, deposition in the New York State Attorney General's longtime civil fraud investigation of Trump and his companies? Well, I guess I don't think it's terribly surprising, given what we know. Um, it was probably good advice from his attorney. Uh, of course, that, that's not a criminal proceeding, but mm -hmm. anything he testified to in that proceeding could be used against him in other criminal proceedings, and that's why he's taking the fifth. I mean, you know, obviously it means he has some basis to fear that he's exposed to... Uh, criminal charges in some kind of proceeding, and the, the, his answers might be relevant to mm -hmm. that. So, uh, that, I mean, all we can take away is, I mean, it's, it's the right of every citizen to invoke the Fifth, of course. It's just kind of ironic, given his past comments that you played earlier. Um, so you say he that, can't, he, <laughs> that he can't use, uh, his, his invoking the Fifth cannot be used against him in a civil case, but it can be used in a criminal case? No, not invoking the Fifth. Well, what I was saying is, he, he, can, he can invoke the Fifth in the civil case because if he testified, his answers could be used against him in the criminal case. Ah, okay. Um, no, but invoking the Fifth actually can be used against you in a civil case. Hmm. Um, it, it can't be used against you in a criminal prosecution. The government isn't allowed to introduce evidence that you took a Fifth and argue that means you're guilty. But in a civil case, uh, a jury is allowed to make an inference, and mm -hmm. the judge can give them this instruction, hmm. that if a uh, defendant or, uh, you know, took the fifth, mm -hmm. that they did that because the answers would have been harmful to their interests in that case. And so they, they can draw an inference against you in a civil proceeding mm. when you take the fifth, but not, not in a criminal case. I see. 
Uh, now, AP suggests that uh, his deposition and, and those of his kids, uh, Don Jr. and Ivanka, suggest that the probe is near its end. Is that generally how these uh, investigations work? Yeah, probably. I mean, it's it's always risky to generalize, but that would be sort of logical that the, the, one of the final things you would do would be to talk to the principals, right? Mm-hmm. Because you want to have everything else wrapped up as much as you can, so you have everything possible to confront them with when mm-hmm. you do finally talk to them. So that would be pr- that would be pretty typical to say that's one of your last steps. We've uh, spoken uh, several times with you before on this show about the difference between a civil investigation and a criminal probe. There was a criminal probe of some of these same issues uh, being carried out by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office with charges thought to be imminent uh, until the newly elected district attorney down there decided to put them on ice, barring further evidence. But quickly, for those who have missed it, uh, what is the general difference between a civil and criminal investigation into really the same matters as we uh, understand it? Yep, and it's not that uncommon in the in these kinds of cases, like fraud cases, to have both civil and criminal proceedings going on. They call it parallel proceedings uh, based on the same facts. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the big difference, of course, is in a criminal case, uh, people can go to jail, right? Mm-hmm. In criminal cases, the government prosecuting uh, individuals or corporations for committing criminal acts, and they they can send people to jail, and they have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest standard that we have in the law. Mm-hmm. In a civil case, based on the same facts, no one's going to go to jail. The civil the pro- the civil proceeding doesn't result in any in anybody being locked up. But their standard of proof is much lower. So uh, they only have to prove their case by a preponderance of the evidence in a mm-hmm. civil case, and that can result in fines is the most common kind of sanction. So in the civil proceeding, no one's going to get locked up, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's much easier for them to prove the case because of that lower burden of proof than it is to prove the fraud beyond a reasonable doubt. And, of course, when we say uh, they could be uh, liable uh, for fines, that almost sort of understates it. I mean, in in fact, uh, the attorney general's office in New York has, uh, in fact, shut down entirely New York uh, uh, Trump's uh, supposed university, Trump's charity organization. Could she, in fact, if she does bring a lawsuit, uh, bring fines that are either so large or penalties against the company itself that it could essentially end up dissolving the Trump organization? I think potentially. I'm not a New York law expert, mm-hmm. so I'm not sure what all of her possible remedies are, but uh, there, there are potentially other remedies like uh, dissolving you know, uh, uh, corporations and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a civil proceeding, I'm actually not certain what all her possible remedies are. And, and you, as the uh, former head of the DOJ's public corruption and, and government fraud section in D.C., what, what determinations go into deciding if a fraud case is either criminal or civil? Well, it's largely the quality of your evidence. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you can't bring the criminal case unless you can believe that you can convince a unanimous jury beyond a reasonable doubt mm-hmm. that there was actual criminal intent. Um, so it really depends. The distinction tends to be based on the quality of the evidence that you think you can put together and put before a jury. You know, how, just how compelling your evidence is that this was not just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, carelessness or reckless business practices or whatever, but actual criminal fraud. And can you prove that beyond a reasonable doubt? Now, I should suggest in New York, as I understand it, that the state attorney general is not allowed to bring criminal charges. So I'm not sure if we should infer 
that, you know, she doesn't have enough evidence to bring criminal charges uh, herself. My understanding, according to New York law anyway, is that the attorney general can do civil uh, cases and that district attorneys do the criminal cases. Right. Uh, in any event, that's your understanding as well? Okay. Uh, in any event, let's let's jump down to Mar-a-Lago now. Uh, my understanding is uh, that there is a difference between a raid, as Donald Trump has described what happened at Mar-a-Lago on Monday. He also called it a siege, uh, and and the execution of a warranted search. Is there actually a difference? And if so, can can you help explain it, or is it just really a semantic difference? Yeah, I'm not sure if there is a universally agreed-upon definition of a raid, but I think the most likely definition is it's a raid if it happens to you. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> um, enough. Yeah. Um, but no, this was a by-the-books. I mean, this is the way it's supposed to be done in this country, right? You, you, you comply with the Fourth Amendment, you go to a judge or a magistrate, and you present your evidence in, in the form of an affidavit and get a search warrant, and then you lawfully execute it. I mean, um, so suggesting that it's somehow you know, improper or makes us a banana republic or something. It's just the opposite. This is this is the the legal procedures that we follow in this country and um, you know, suggesting that somehow improper is the, the only way to do that is to suggest the president a former president should kind of automatically be off limits. Like mm-hmm. you could never enforce the law against the former president because other than that there's no basis at all to say there was anything improper or uh, illegal done here. At least not now. I mean, I suppose if there were some evidence, if we could see the uh, the warrant or whatever was presented to the judge uh, to establish probable cause. I mentioned that uh, Obama's former solicitor general uh, has said that uh, Trump could clear all of this up. He could simply release the warrant uh, to clear up any speculation about what Monday's search at Mar-a-Lago was about. Would, would, uh, w- what would be in such a warrant, Randall Eliason? Would, would Trump have it in his possession? And is there any legal reason uh, that would prevent him from releasing it to the public right now if he wanted to? So he'll have the, the warrant, basically the cover page, um, mm-hmm. you know, the warrant itself. Accompanying the search warrant there would be an affidavit from a law enforcement officer, and that's what would detail all of the evidence that the government had to establish probable cause that uh, not only was a crime committed, but they believe there's evidence of that crime in this location. He almost certainly does not have that affidavit. That's Mm. almost certainly under seal with Mm -hmm. the court. So he'd have basically a cover page, and that would give you a little information, because it has to cite the statutes that the... uh, investigators believe might have been violated. So uh-huh. That would tell us, you know, is it really focused on this, uh, you know, the removal and destruction of records, or mm-hmm. is it possibly something else like obstruction of justice or, you know, some mm-hmm. other possible charges that would be listed on the face of the of the search warrant. Mm-hmm. Um, but you wouldn't get all the factual background that that established probable cause. He's not going to have that. Well, even, uh, even he, the... He should, he should also have an inventory of what was seized, because um, they're required mm-hmm. to give him that. And so... You know, to the extent that would shed some light on what they were looking for or what they actually found, um, that would be interesting, too. And there's nothing to stop him from releasing that. So, But they have, they've chosen not to do that. And, you know, you can so, speculate about why, but uh, for all the clamoring about how this was improper and unauthorized, you know, I mean, they could clear up some of that by releasing the warrant. That could, there's yeah. no, nothing legal uh, to, to prevent him from doing so if he wanted to. 
Now, Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell and others have demanded that Merrick Garland explain himself immediately, uh, explain why he and, well, Trump-appointed FBI Director Christopher Wray and a federal judge all approve the execution of this uh, search at Trump's Florida compound. What, if anything, should the DOJ or FBI tell us about what happened at Mar-a-Lago? Do, do, uh, does, does Merrick Garland have a responsibility to explain such an extraordinary event to the public? No, not, uh, certainly not now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be a breach of longstanding DOJ policy. You don't comment or you don't hold press conferences about ongoing investigations. And that protects not only the privacy of those who are being investigated, but the integrity of the investigation itself. So Garland is a very by-the-book guy, and mm-hmm. he's not going to say anything in response to this. Um, and, you know, people should be careful what they wish for. I mean, do they really want Garland and Ray coming out and detailing all of the evidence that led up to the search warrant? I mean, there's a reason we don't do that, because those charges aren't proven yet. Those allegations aren't uh-huh. proven yet. Um, and so I don't expect anything to, to result from these uh, demands for an explanation. That's not the way DOJ operates. And so the first and perhaps only time we would hear from uh, Mayor Garland, as you would expect, would be if and when actual charges are brought against the former president? Yes, that's right. Now, I know this case uh, against him is certainly unprecedented, obviously, but but how common are these types of search warrants versus what Republicans seem to be suggesting should have happened here, I guess, uh, subpoenas or even simply requests, pretty please for documents uh, in, in, in a case like this. Is, is this particularly unusual for them to go to court to get a warrant to search for this material? No, it's not really. Um, and it does sound like there were attempts to get it, get you know, these documents voluntarily, and, uh-huh. and they turned over some things, but they were convinced there were a number of mater- uh, things that had not been turned over. And it's not unusual, and you... you um, you basically uh, often a couple of different reasons you might get, go the search warrant route instead of a of a subpoena or something like that. Mm-hmm. One is surprise. I mean, if you're convinced that if we subpoena this person, they're just going to destroy the documents uh, rather than turn them over, mm-hmm. then you might get a search warrant to be able to swoop in and grab them before they have a chance to do that. Um, or another would be where you have subpoenaed the documents or tried to get them voluntarily, and you're convinced that the person's not complying. They're not giving you everything they're supposed to, or they're lying to you about what they actually have. So then you get the search warrant to go in and see for yourself and actually recover the things yourself. So, no, it's not at all unusual. And so, in theory, there would be a justifiable reason why they chose this particular route in order to try to get at whatever they were trying to get at. Uh, David Lofman, uh, former top official at the DOJ's National Security Division, Uh, told Business Insider, quote, there's every reason to think that there is a plus factor in the quantum and quantity of evidence that the government already had to support probable cause in this case, knowing that they would be besieged with criticism in some quarters, that this is politically motivated. If I were a senior department official who reviewed this prior to pulling the trigger on presenting an affidavit to a magistrate judge, I would have wanted a sufficient quality and quantity of evidence that was so pulverizing in its effect to simply neutralize any arguments to the contrary. Yep. Uh, since Trump has failed to release the warrant, uh, should we presume that the decision makers at uh, the FBI and, and the DOJ uh, felt the way that Lofman describes there? Yeah, I agree with that statement. I think uh, given 
the outcry that you know is going to result from this mm-hmm. and, and that we've actually seen, uh, you know, is perfectly predictable. Um, you'd want something far beyond just probable cause. I mean, you're not going, DOJ is not going to do this in a kind of marginal case or a borderline case. They go, ah, maybe we got it, maybe we don't, let's go see. I mean, mm-hmm. they're going to, again, uh, before taking this kind of extraordinary step, unprecedented step, I mean, mm-hmm. that alone is not a reason not to do it because there's so much that's been unprecedented about the Trump administration. But before doing that, they're, they're going to really be sure they've got, I think, uh, substantial proof and that it's something really important that they're going after. I mean, not just that they've got evidence of crimes, but the stuff that they're trying to get is really important and really significant. They're not going to execute a search warrant to try to recover, you know, the guest list from some state uh, dinner that was right. held at the White House that Trump took with them. I mean, it's going to be something pretty significant to take this step. And uh, on that point, uh, Randall, you know, I don't believe you've got any, uh, to my knowledge, any special inside sources here. And I've tried not to ask you to speculate uh, speculate uh, on any of this because there's really enough folks sort of doing that round the clock since Monday on cable TV. But and I do promise not to hold this against you if you're wrong. What is is your sense if you have one about what the hell is actually going on here specifically? What sort of crime would merit this kind of, yes, invasive, invasive search, I'm sorry, of a, of a sitting U.S. president by an otherwise, not a sitting, a former U.S. president, by an otherwise pretty level-headed, dare I say conservative, uh, attorney general like Merrick Garland. I, I, you know, so far, really, the, the things that I've heard, oh, that he's not returning classified documents, don't seem like they would merit this kind of extraordinary action. Do you, uh, do you want to speculate for a moment? Well, you know, we are really speculating, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but I do think it would have to be something pretty significant. I mean, if it's just routine classified, if there is such a thing as routine mm-hmm. classified documents, um, you've also got this wrinkle that, well, the president can decide to unclassify something. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of legal wrinkle there, too. You know, what if he just comes in and says, well, I decided to declassify it and then took it with me. Mm-hmm. So that almost makes me think that if that's the focus, it's got to be some kind of national security stuff, something they really think is dangerous for it to be out there that could fall into the wrong hands, that could really be, you know, harmful to national security somehow. Um well, does it have to? But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Go no, go ahead. Uh, but another alternative. I mean, everybody, a lot, most people are speculating about you know these crimes that involve removing presidential records or removing you know official documents and things like that. And you know, if that's all it was, and if it was relatively routine stuff, I'd be surprised if they take this kind of step. Mm-hmm. I guess. And so that makes me think either the documents themselves are something extraordinarily sensitive. Um, and and potentially dangerous to national security, or that there's something else going on there. That it's evidence. Uh, so not the fact that he took the records, but it's what's in them. You know, potential evidence of some things related to January sixth. Um, you know, related to the uh, the phony electors mm-hmm. scheme, related to the attempt to overturn the election. You know, if those documents were taken from the White House so that they wouldn't fall into the hands of January 6th investigators mm. or a grand jury. Mm. And well, now you're talking about possible obstruction of justice, crimes like that. So, you know, again, recognizing we're all completely speculating. Yeah, yeah. One, one possible reason not to release the search warrant 
is because it's going to recite the crimes that are being investigated on the face of the search warrant, and maybe those are things that people haven't really focused on yet or really thought about, and Trump and his attorneys don't want that out there. The fact that, well, maybe this is actually about obstruction of justice or mm-hmm. conspiracy or something else. It's not just about removing records. Uh, underscoring that, really, all of the information that we have so far seems to be coming from either Trump himself or uh, sources close to Trump, who, as I've right. been saying, would you know want to paint all of this in, in the best possible light. But, you know, when we talk about documents falling into the wrong hands, uh, Randall Eliasson, um, not just, it seems to me, my understanding, and, and, and clear, clear me up here if I'm wrong, but that there has to be a reason, sort of an immediacy, a concern, that if they don't essentially move in right now and get these documents or whatever it is they're looking for, then something bad could happen. So it's not just that there is uh, classified records, for example, that, as you say, might, he might have declassified or think that he declassified, but it's national security information that if got out, it would be really dangerous and that they have a reason to believe they need to go in now and get it to prevent them, to prevent those documents from going out. Like, Maybe Trump is planning to give those documents to some foreign power. Is there any sort of immediacy that needs to be uh, included as part of the uh, probable cause uh, reasons when you're trying to get a warrant from a magistrate judge? Well, not necessarily. I mean, if the crime, uh, again, it kind of depends on what's being investigated and what is they're worried about. But if the crime is simply removing the documents then those documents are evidence of that crime, and whether he's going to do something with them immediately or just wants to keep them for, you know, in his basement for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still evidence of the crime that's being investigated, which is just removing them from the White House in the first place. So I don't think there'd be a requirement that the government show he's imminently about to release them to some foreign power or anything like that. I'd, I'd Mm-hmm. don't think that would be necessary. All right, last question before I let you go here, uh, Randall. Uh, Marco Rubio, who's an actual U.S. senator, as it turns out, from Florida, uh, mm-hmm. a- and a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, he doesn't seem to have many concerns about the uh, security issues here. Uh, on Sean Hannity last night, uh, he said, oh, I don't think they were actually looking for documents. It was just an excuse. Uh, he says they found some Obama donor judge to uh, to write this warrant. And then he says, not even a judge, a magistrate to write and give them a search warrant. Uh, So, uh, you know, I don't know his relationship to Obama or not, if he donated to him, whatever, but he is a federal magistrate judge. Is that not a real judge? What's the difference between a judge and a magistrate? So first of all, it's routine for magistrate judges to sign search warrants. That's one of the things they frequently do. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's um, magistrate judges, so they're not, they're, there are real federal judges, true federal judges, which are Article Three judges who are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. They have mm-hmm. lifetime tenure. That's that's your standard federal judge. Magistrate judges are judicial officers who are not appointed by the president. Uh, I think they're usually appointed by the court by the judges of the local court, mm. uh, the chief judge or the, or the judges together. They basically hire these uh, people to be magistrate judges. They're they serve for a fixed term of years, might be eight years, I think, mm-hmm. something like that. And what they do is they do a lot of the more administrative tasks mm-hmm. for the courtrooms. So they handle things like arraignments, discovery, fights, signing warrants, mm-hmm. arrest warrants, search warrants, things like that. So this is what they do. So they're federal judicial officers, but they're not full-blown federal judges. But it is routine for a magistrate judge to sign a search warrant. 
and they don't write the search warrant, which is something Rubio said, you know, they got the magistrate judge to write the warrant for them. No, they just sign it. They read it. <laughs> the, it's written by the prosecutors and the investigators, the FBI agents or whoever is investigating. They bring that affidavit to the magistrate judge who reads it and determines whether or not there's probable cause or not, and if there is, signs the warrant, but they don't, they don't write the warrant. Well, clearly it's a scandal that they would bring him to a uh, fake judge, like a magistrate judge. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and, and again, Rubio, a sitting member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, is not concerned in the least, it seems, about these uh, national security that could be involved with those documents down at uh, Mar-a-Lago, if that is what they are actually looking for. Randall D. Eliasson, law professor at D.C.'s George Washington University Law School, also the uh, former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. You can find his work uh, often at Washington Post, as well as his own blog, sidebarsblog.com, and you can find him on the Twitters at R.D. Eliasson. Randall, always great speaking with you, my friend. Thank you for, as ever, making us... uh, a whole lot smarter after <laughs> after we do. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. Okay. Yes, I know, Desi <laughs> Doyen. I blew through our second break. Yes, you did. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It was very interesting, and I'm so glad that uh, that uh, Professor Eliason is able to give us just the facts on how this stuff actually works. And I just can't help but picking his brain when I have him here. I know. I could have gone on for another half it's hour It's like a mini so, law class. So very sorry mini. about that. Anyway, uh, thanks again to Randall Eliason. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program. Download it for free anytime at bradblog.com where we hope it comes in helpful. There is no paywall at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to leave a one-time donation or if you don't mind signing up for a monthly automated monthly donation of any amount you like. All of it is greatly appreciated and very much needed. So thank you in advance. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there at all of the above until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck world. Oh, oh, oh.